Hello and welcome to another episode of But Why, the podcast is all about digging into big questions and tricky topics via honest conversations. And this week we're going to be looking at the Ebola crisis. Benjamin Black, who's my guest today, is a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist. He's a specialist advisor to international aid organisations, including, I've been really worrying about how shit my French accent's going to be, but I'm going to try, including Medicine Sans Frontières, specialising on sexual, reproductive and maternal health care for populations in times of crisis, part of which he documents in his jaw-dropping first book, Belly Woman, Birth, Blood and Ebola, The Untold Story, which is an incredible encapsulation of his time in Sierra Leone during the Ebola crisis. And it's a call to arms to consider what happens to pregnant women when a humanitarian catastrophe hits. And this feels acutely accurate, not accurate, acutely significant now when this week a baby was born within the rubble of the earthquake in in um, Syria. And it, it's, it's been born and its whole family's died, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, it's a very strange thing and I wonder how it is for you actually where something like that is almost so beyond the realms of what your brain can compute that it goes, nope, I will just, even if I look at this baby, I can't compute it. Yeah, it's um, it's huge, isn't it? Um, just just trying to imagine, you know, the, the start in life of that baby and, and what else is, 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 is going to come, you know, not only, not only born during an earthquake, but born in Syria uh, in a country which is still reeling from well over a decade of humanitarian crisis, difficult access to aid, um, all the economic and political hardships that were already there, and then and then this earthquake. Um, but also that for this baby being born with its family having died, but in particularly having having the mother die, um, as, as we find with any any case where, where where mother dies during childbirth, but the baby survives, the chances of of that baby surviving itself become dramatically reduced, mm-hmm. um, which which is one of the reasons why um, why why I sort of focus so much on thinking about reducing maternal deaths, particularly in in humanitarian settings, because it's and 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 you'll know this from the book, you know that that yeah, of course it's tragic. Um, for a maternal death for, for that for that woman, uh, but what's specifically um, relevant for maternal deaths is that they have this huge ripple effect, and that, that the death of a mother has this impact on on all the pre existing children, the local um, fabric, cultural fabric, the way that society holds together, the way that family holds together. You know, if um, let's say she had a daughter who was 13 years old or 12 years old, the chances of that daughter being being um, married as, as a child immediately go up purely through the virtue of the mother dying. So, so it has this huge impact. And, and absolutely, I was actually thinking about this just before we spoke about um, how relevant it is today with, with this massive, massive earthquake um, in Turkey and Syria. Um, and how we, um, of course, this this case is put it in the news, but how we often forget that within this crisis, there's going to be this whole other crisis going on underneath. Yeah, this is it, and it's, and you know, you look at that baby, and you have these mixed feelings because it's a miracle because it it survived, 
but it, yeah, I don't know. It's also the most pure encapsulation of the most innocent party you could possibly yeah. imagine in the middle of that. And yeah, and the story of its mother and you like the things that the body can do, you know, it did, it did birth that child even yeah, yeah in the, the, the yeah, unthinkably bad circumstances. Um, I don't even know how to begin to like talk about Belly Woman. It's one of those books, but it's not, and I, I don't even want to talk about it as a book because it's not, it's a documentation of an experience, but from the opening kind of few pages, I was just like, this is extraordinary. And I think particularly as a woman, as a mother of three and thinking about how that experience has happened. And, and then, and weirdly for me, particularly in my like final labor, which was really a fantastic experience. I had this real strong connection to women across the world. I was like, wow, every day, millions of women are doing this for generations. But the, the, the idea that the circumstances for other women is so opposing to mine is is mind-boggling tell me tell me about why you initially went on you know went to Sierra Leone and what was what was your ambition then what were you expecting sure so I um so as, as you said I'm, I'm a doctor um I specialize in obstetrics and gynecology um which is looking after women's health and pregnancy care um and more broadly, I, I work a lot in sexual reproductive health, so so sort of the bigger picture as well. So so thinking more across uh, contraception, safe abortion care, um, thinking about treatment of sexually transmitted infections, reducing the risk of HIV. So so it's quite broad. And and I went into this work because I wanted to work in the humanitarian sector. I wanted to be part of um, aid response, and so I um, had taken a break from my NHS job for a few years. Uh, to work for Medicine Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. And in um, May 2014, which was just as I was um, getting ready to get to go out with them, the World Health Organization produced a report looking at all the countries across the world. They, they do this every few years and, and looking at the trends in, in maternal health and which countries are doing well, which countries are not um, performing as well as expected. And at that time, Sierra Leone... Um, had been ranked as the country with the the highest um, amount of proportion of women um, dying from pregnancy and childbirth related causes. Uh, so, so at that time, they, they were estimating that if you were 15 years old, if you were a 15 year old girl, the chance of you um, dying from pregnancy related causes in your lifetime was about one out of every 21 15 year old girls. And that, that was considered to be the highest in the world at that time. And so to the organization MSF, they had a, a referral center in Sierra Leone specifically for maternity complications. Um, and so I was asked to go out to, to work in that, that referral center, providing um, care for, for pregnant women who had run into, into difficulty. So a lot of cesarean sections and, and other sort of um, complex care for, for, for women who, who may have either given birth and then had a hemorrhage or got infected or, or something else had happened um, or who had arrived to us still pregnant but with, with an ongoing complication, perhaps severe malaria or, or conditions that um, like eclampsia um, or, or even prolonged, prolonged labours where, um, where, where they got into, into difficulty. And they were really complicated cases um, because I think, I think one of the things that we forget is that it's it's not just about um the country that they're in it's about the access to the healthcare. so a lot of these women 
would um, have a complication, but it might take them days to reach us. And so, you know, I, I often sort of, when I'm talking to my, my colleagues in the UK, you know, if, if a woman's in labor here in the UK, if I'm working on the labor ward in London and they're at that stage of labor where they're trying to push the baby out, um, we've got really clear guidelines on how long that, that should last for. And, and generally we're talking about between, you know, once we're getting to three up to five hours, we would be, you know, you'd be expecting a, a doctor to be coming in and having a chat with you about, you know, how long this has lasted and, and the complications that might arise. But these women might be arriving after two days of that, even even longer. And so it wouldn't just be um, that they were coming with a, what we might call an obstructed labor, a baby that's not coming out, but they might be coming already having got an infection. The baby maybe is no longer alive. Um, they may have bled. Um, the uterus itself may have been injured, so 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 it's, which can happen um, that it can open inside the the abdomen. Um, I mean, these things we don't see in the UK, so I don't want your listeners to be thinking, "Gosh, you know, if I'm in labour too long, that then my uterus is going to to open inside me." That it's a very very rare complication in, in a high income setting, but it's something which we are seeing almost daily um, in the referral centre because of this sort of broader. Um, uh, challenges, economic challenges and transportation challenges, education challenges. You know, there's so many things that come into play when we talk about maternal health. Um, so that was, yeah, so that's why I was there. But um, as you as you know, and as you've already said, I also arrived just as the Ebola outbreak was was beginning. And of course, we didn't know what it was going to be. Now, now it's very easy for us to look back and be like, wow, that was huge. Um, but when I was arriving, um, I arrived in June 2014. It was still very much um, kept to the border areas between Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea. And still, um, the general feeling was that this would be like other Ebola outbreaks. It would it would stay relatively remote, remote um, infect the areas in, in those remote locations and sort of burn itself out um, because that's what Ebola had always done till then. And explain why um, Ebola is particularly difficult when you're in the realm of obstetrics. Yeah, so so Ebola is um, it's a very deadly disease, as I'm sure many people know because we often hear about it in the news. Um, so, so back in 2014, um, the chance of surviving Ebola was 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 felt to be less than thirty percent. So 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 you know over seventy percent uh, death rate for pregnant women. It was felt to be about ninety percent. So so really poor chance of surviving if you got infected. Um, and the way that it presents, um, so so we talk about it as being being a hemorrhagic illness. So so a lot of the time it presents with with signs of bleeding, um, but also really non specific signs. So a bit like with. COVID actually if you if you remember looking back you know that thing where you're always like well it might be COVID it might not be um we need to get a test um well it was the same with Ebola so so this the the initial symptoms are quite flu-like so a bit of a fever feeling drowsy achy um a bit of vomiting nausea maybe some abdominal pain um tiredness uh you know, and, and 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 of course, bleeding. It's more specifically in pregnant women, you'd, you'd also see miscarriages or, or the baby uh, perhaps dying while, while still pregnant. Um, but as I said, because I was in this obstetric referral centre and women often arrived with many complications, that package of symptoms 
was our bread and butter. You know, there was nothing unusual in that package of symptoms outside of an Ebola outbreak. So um, for pregnancy care, the challenge is how do you know if this complication in pregnancy is because it's a complication of pregnancy or because they um, they have Ebola? And and the difficulty is that this, the way that you would respond is dramatically different because, you know, if it's a complication of pregnancy, um, what we want to do is act really quickly, get them inside the facility, get an IV line in, maybe think about going to the operating theatre if we need to do an operation. Um, there's going to be a lot of body fluid involved because there's blood, there's amniotic fluid. Um, and that's how Ebola spreads through body fluids. Um, and and we're going to, you know, we're going to want to save that, that woman and her baby. If they have Ebola, of course, we still want to do everything we can to, to try and save their lives. Um, but the difference is we want to be keeping them outside that facility. We don't want, want them around all the other mothers and babies. We want to make sure our healthcare workers are protected, making sure they wear PPE, which we all know what that is now, um, but a slightly higher level of PPE than, than, than we saw during COVID. So it takes a bit longer to put on. It's, it's very hot to wear. Um, it's quite difficult to operate in. Um, and we probably want to avoid doing any of those really invasive procedures. Um, one, because you might make the situation worse for the woman because she might bleed more through through having a cesarean section. Um, but also because you really want to make sure that you protect your healthcare workers with it being such a deadly illness. Um, at that time, things have changed now, but at that time there was no vaccine, there was no treatment um, so, so your best protection was not getting infected. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's worth, worth knowing, you know, in Sierra Leone, if you're a healthcare worker, you are 32 times more likely to get Ebola than the general population, purely through a virtue of your job. And so, so this was really, really central for us. But of course, you know, just through so many challenges in trying to make sure we could provide life-saving care, essential care, um, as quickly as possible, but as safely as possible, when, when essentially we were working pretty much in the dark. It would take about two or three days to get a test result. So that's that's a long time when, when you're dealing with, whether it's maternity or Ebola, but a complication where, where you know that they might not have two to three days that they can wait for that result. Yeah. There's a couple of things that really, I mean, there's so much that struck me, but number, there's a piece of language you use, which is, Ebola was a disease that that killed those that you loved the most, and and so frequently it was family who had been looking after other family members who were dying of it and unknowingly exposing themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This this was something which was said by um by an international expert who came came to talk with us while we were in Sierra and he actually the guy who said this was the guy who um had the light bulb uh, at the beginning and realised that it was Ebola that, that was happening in Guinea because they'd never been Ebola before um, in this area, which is why it had that sort of head start um, in being able to spread. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and I, like I say in the book, you know, I really would carry those thought, that wording with me because, um, you know, it's, it's human nature, isn't it? You know, someone's sick at home, uh, even if you're being told um, by by politicians or public health figures or on the radio if there's someone ill at home don't touch them uh send them to a treatment center where you know you know as a relative well if they go to that treatment center we don't 
we can't really see them. Um, we can't be with them. We keep hearing that people go in these treatment centers and they never come back out again. Um, I mean, that's so hard. Of course, your instinct as, as a mother, as a, as a child looking after a relative is, let me look after you here. Let me, let me care for you. And of course, that's exactly how Ebola spreads mm. through, through direct contact and body fluids. Um, and, and this was one of the, the huge challenges actually was, was with this sort of how do you communicate this in a, in a compassionate way to a population to make sure that, that they can feel that they are protected, uh, but also feel that they, they're doing what's right for them and their family from a cultural and, and emotional perspective. Um, and I do, th- I mean, I, I'm always a bit cautious about drawing too many um, linkages between, between COVID and Ebola because they are really, really different diseases with very different mortality rates and then spread in different ways. Um, but having said that, I do think there's a lot that we can reflect from one to the other. And, and one of those things is, 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 is exactly this, you know, COVID um, spread within households. Um, it's spread through, through people being close to each other. And, um, and we, as a nation, went through this same emotional journey of, you know, if your relative is admitted into hospital with COVID, you can't go be with them. You can't sit by their side in, in an intensive care unit. When we were hearing every day about these, these high rates of death, um, you know, and, and of course it impacted maternity as well very much. That there was a lot of um discussions around around, you know, uh, maternity patients, we, even if they didn't have COVID, um, having access to their chosen birth partners. Um, and and I think that this this was something which we really, you know, we should have done better on mm. because we knew from previous outbreaks like Ebola that it's just so important that um, the health facilities continue to to be appealing. I'm not sure if that's the right mm. word, but you know that they, they they remain a place that you feel you can you can go to and, and not only get treatment but also get care and feel safe and and have access to your own comforts, which often is your friends and your family and. Um, and if you're if you're not getting that, you're less likely to engage or engage late. Yeah, you're so yeah. right. I think that human word in the middle of it all is the most significant thing. And yeah, I don't want to draw comparison to between Ebola and COVID because there are so many things, as you say, that are, are worlds apart. But that was the bit that I think became very challenging during the pandemic is that we tuned out of our instincts and our own human feeling of where the boundaries were because of the environment that was that we lived in you know is it more important to be with a dying relative in their final days than risking your own health how healthy are you what are the choices you make and yeah I you know I didn't have my children during that time but I often think of those scans where women may have received the worst possible news on their own and that and yeah whether that's yeah very human really and it's difficult and it's much easier to reflect than it is to be making decisions in the middle of it it is and I think that um I mean I absolutely don't want to defend those decisions um because because I just I can only say for myself I was not supportive of them um and I, I was I was working in the UK throughout the COVID uh, pandemic and in, in maternity and at least in my own in my own department um 
we didn't ever stop um, having having partners uh, present throughout inpatient journey. You know, when a woman was admitted into hospital for a pregnancy complication or during labour or after giving birth, um, but purely because because we had these discussions and we knew that on balance we felt it was much safer actually for for women to feel that they um, could come to the hospital and 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 be with someone of their choosing, um, then then the risks of, of them not having that and coming late or 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 you know having the trauma of let's say having had a cesarean section and being on a ward with your newborn baby and and not having someone by your side. I mean, look, nurses and midwives are fantastic, but they can only do so much. You know, you're you're on a ward with another thirty women and their babies. You need you, sometimes you just need someone to yourself mm-hmm. um, in these times, and it's it's really important. Um, but but what I, what I was going to say is what what we can't overlook is the impact that fear has. You know, and that the fear that the general public had, of course, was also fear that healthcare workers had. They they also had families to go back to uh, their own health to think of, and and they all came to work. You know, people came to work and did their job, um, but. There was everyone has their own line of where where they're willing to take risk, and and it might not be, uh, it might not be evidence based, and it might not be logical to to everyone else, but but everyone's got their own lines, and and I think that's where um, where these things sometimes go a little bit awry. Mm. Yes, exactly, exactly, and and you know, especially in if we're talking about in the in the lens of medicine, you're always. Um, if I'm right, negotiating between the science and the human instinct of of what's presenting in front of you. And that's kind of the art of it, isn't it? Is to know, yeah, to take what you're seeing and translate that into an action. What I'm interested in is you did come home from Sierra Leone. What was the kind of tipping point to that? Was it, you know, just because that was the amount you were contracted for? Was there a point where you thought, I need to be out of here now? What, yeah, what was that like? Yeah, well, I sort of went back and forth. Um, so I, when I, the, the first time that I was there, um, which was when the the epidemic really exploded, and and was the most, I, I think it's probably the most intense part of the book in many ways because it's um, without wanting to spoil 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 the story for for too many people. But you know, it's it's where we were faced with this. Um, wave of, of Ebola and, and and fighting to try and understand how do we keep the maternal maternity center running um and 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 the really difficult dilemmas really impossible decisions that, that we were facing with then and then of course um working in the Ebola treatment centers which were were very difficult places to be um in terms of um the volume of patients, but also just the the emotional toll of of hearing and seeing the suffering every day. Uh, but for that first um, first journey, the reason I came back was because um, where I was living, colleagues uh, became infected with with, with Ebola, um, and um, someone I was living with got infected. Someone I was working with very closely um, got infected. Uh, and it, it, that I think was the tipping point actually, um, because there were, I mean, I was already, let's, let's be honest, I was already exhausted at that point. I mean, I think I was, I was sort of done. Um, but I was, I was still, still there every day because I felt this 
need to keep going because at that time there were so few responders there were so few people coming in um that that there was that feeling that well if we if we go who who comes in um but that that point when when people around me started getting infected that that was it um i sort of called my family and said listen uh, i'm gonna i'm coming home um but i i felt a huge amount of um guilt for leaving uh, the way that the way that we did um and and a huge responsibility to return so so i actually um was sort of planning my return very soon after getting back into the uk uh and then and then i continued over the next couple of years to be to be going uh to west africa um until 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 it was time for me to return to my nhs job um and that was that was yeah uh, mid 2016 but how is it when you get off the plane in in England and back to this this version of reality which it must have been the biggest cultural shock ever yeah you know i think that um i mean i still so 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 i still work at the moment for 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 the, for the organization msf i do half 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 msf half nhs so i actually go back to Sierra Leone every year um at least once or twice and now i sort of am able to sort of it's almost like a a, a switch flicks in my brain you know it's sort of I'm in MSF mode or I'm back in NHS mode and, and, and I find that transition very easy. I think that um, during the time of the book, which was, you know, pretty traumatic um, and I think probably much more traumatic than I'd appreciated, um, I was actually in a bit too much shock um, to feel that, that cultural shift. And that sounds really odd, but sort of looking back, you know, I would sort of step off the plane and be back in in the UK and I'd sort of immediately get back into the swing of okay I'm gonna go out with my friends I'm gonna um go to the bar go uh see family do do all the things that I was just used to doing and and I sort of get caught off guard every now and then where I'd suddenly like be back in the Ebola treatment centers or have this huge wave of guilt like oh my god why I'm having fun and and this is what I've just come from this is what I've just been seeing um you know, and I, I almost sort of like, I mean, it sounds very dramatic, but, you know, sort of get this wave of emotion that would just sort of bubble up inside me. And I'd be like, you know, almost like very disorientated by it. Um, but I think I just was really, I, I think through the time of day in, day out working in the Ebola treatment centers um, and, and and sort of manage, managing those scenarios that I, that I talk about in the book, I just sort of disconnected myself a little bit unknowingly from from my emotions um and it just took a bit of time to find my way back because it's interesting am I right in saying you got awarded a medal for your work and and then you said how do you feel about it and you said ultimately you feel ashamed which is a strong word yeah well I actually um so everyone from the UK who who went out to the Ebola response was awarded a medal but I actually never took mine um and and the reason was because at the time um, that those medals were being given out, I was still working in the response. So it's not, you know, I think everybody was right, you know, everyone who who took their medals right to take it. And and, and um, it was just my personal choice, but I was still deep in it. I was still planning to go back. Um, I was still thinking a lot about the maternal health issues. So even as the epidemic was, you know, tailing out and, and we knew it was it was going to be over, I was still very much aware that the maternal health situation was was a huge crisis that was yet to be um, considered. And, you know, I was saying to you about 
just before the epidemic, the World Health Organization had said that a 15-year-old girl had a 1 in 21 chance of dying in her lifetime from, from childbirth-related causes. At the peak of the Ebola epidemic, that was estimated to be 1 in 7. Um, and so this was, you know, this was something which really lay very heavily on me um, and, and, and many of my colleagues. And I just wasn't in the right headspace to be thinking about collecting awards. Um, and, and I felt that the world still had um, a lot of reflection to do as well on how how the response had gone, you know, how long it took for international organizations to engage, um, how, you know, a bit like probably the questions that Syrians are asking right now, um, you know, where, where is everybody? Where, what's taking you so long to get here? We're, we're in desperate need. Mm. Um, and so I just wasn't, yeah, I wasn't ready. I was still dealing with my, absolutely my own feelings of shame, shame on myself for just not, being able to find a way to keep providing safe maternity care in a country that desperately, desperately needed it um, at a time of even further crisis. And, you know, and uh, you know, it probably sounds very unfair to me to say, well, I, you know, I, you know, I'm responsible for that, but I was the one there and I was the one facing those decisions and need, no decision could ever be right. You know, do you keep providing a maternity service um, when you think that you're really putting your your colleagues at risk of getting a deadly infection and, and the, the impact that might have much broadly, you know, if, if, if we all got infected, would other people then feel the willingness to come and um, work in the response to bring it to an end? Um, but also um, the decision to, to stop and, and know that that means that you're going to reduce access to maternity care, which is exactly what I'd built my career about doing. Do, do you feel so, with the benefit of time, you are able to not be easier on yourself, but uh, to, to find peace with that? Or does it still bother you? Um, I'm not sure that I'll ever find, find peace with it. And I'm okay with that because I also think that that in some ways is a good thing because it, it, it sort of motivates me to keep working in this, in this area. Um, and, and I'm still very engaged in, in um, providing such reproductive healthcare and humanitarian emergencies. Um, but I think that I'm a lot more pragmatic about it. You know, the situation is what it was. You know, we, we were there. We were faced with this terrible epidemic in a really resource constrained situation and we had to make a decision and and i and i still think today that there was no right decision um yeah for sure if i was in the same situation now having had all the experience that i've had over the years since then would i make different decisions absolutely i would i would fight tooth and nail to keep providing maternity care to increase maternity care but i didn't have that experience back then and no one else around me did either um, so I think that's that's sort of where, where I've sort of put it for myself. Um, and but but I think also the other thing which makes it much uh, easier now is that I, I've stayed in contact with a lot of my colleagues from that time. Um, you know, no one else can really understand what we were facing apart from my colleagues and especially my Sierra Leonean colleagues um, who remain very good friends uh, today. Um and they were, you know, a lot of them were really angry when we made the decision to stop the maternity um, service uh, for lots of different reasons. Um, 
but they all now, when I speak to them, uh, it's very clear that they, they've also come to the same conclusions. And, um, and I write about it in the book, but, you know, there was this moment where, where one of them who was very angry with me sort of comes back to me later and says, well, you know, we, we were really angry with you then, but then we heard about what happened in other, in other hospitals. We heard about midwives and doctors getting affected and dying. And, and now we look back and we realise that that decision saved our lives. Um, now, did it or didn't it, we'll never know. But at the time, it really did feel like a huge, huge risk to take. Yeah, and you can only you can only deal with what's in front of you with what you know at that moment, and 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 that's it, isn't it? We, if we all, yeah. you know, it's the, it's the, the struggle of being human. If we could all go back and live life based on the things we learn later on, it, things would shape up differently. We've touched on it briefly, but with the COVID outbreak, which again you were in the centre of, how how did your experience from Ebola translate? Yeah, what was that like? Finding yourself in a in a different version of a of a, a similar experience. Um, well, I think, like many people, I um, I found the COVID pandemic an incredibly frustrating experience, and I think I spent a lot of it swearing quite loudly um, at the decisions being made um, from from high up, and and just sort of really pulling my hair out. Um, I think that. Uh, you know, like like we said, there is there are there are things that we can pull across, and and one of them was just the the way that information was communicated. I found um, this idea that you know getting information to the general public and 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 helping people understand what's going on at this huge moment, the best way would be with Boris Johnson and a couple of other um, you know similar looking people on the six six o'clock news every evening. Um, and and then I was like, this, you know, everything that we've talked about and learned about how to engage with communities, how to get messaging that's understood and 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 listened to through all levels of society, all different cultural groups, um, and th- and this is what we've got, you know. It just it it really um, embarrassed me to be honest. I was like, this is this is not what we've learned. Um, but there was so much, you know, looking back, you know, all those challenges we faced with the slowness of the UK to accept that there was even transmission of COVID within the community. You know, for weeks they were saying, no, no, it's just people coming from China and Thailand. And, you know, as doctors, you know, I remember doing a ward round. I just got back, I actually just got back from Sierra Leone in um, January 2020. And I, I was doing a ward round in a hospital in London and I saw three pregnant women who had all come in overnight with a fever and a cough and and none of them had been to Thailand or China. And we wanted to test them. We were not allowed to test them because the rules at the time were you could only test people that have come from these this this little list of countries. And um I uh I was in contact with an epidemiologist in Australia uh, at the, around the time. She said, Look, you if you got community transmission in, in London. And I said, well, officially, no, because we're not allowed to test. So if you can't test, you don't know. And I'm sure, well, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, but I did sort of think, you know, it's very convenient not to test people if you don't want to know something. Bearing in mind, this was all when we were doing the Brexit negotiation and everything else that was going on around then. Um, But she's, you know, she said, because it's really weird because a lot of the people who we are testing positive for COVID in Australia are people who are arriving from Heathrow. 
So, you know, it just, I, I did find, <laughs> I found it really frustrating and I, and I did feel at the time, whether it would have changed anything or not, you know, who knows, probably not. But I did think at the time we are allowing, you know, we've got our head in the sands, or at least the government's pushing our head in the sands, but we know where this is heading. We know that we're not testing, so we're not contact tracing. We're just letting rip, you know, and um, so, yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot in COVID that I found very frustrating because, yeah, from, from Ebola, we knew, we knew if you don't get your community engagement right early on, if you, and by community engagement, I mean, you know, really speaking with individuals, making sure that you've got your religious leaders involved, you've got your cultural icons involved, people that can speak to teenagers, can speak to the older generation, speak to your, your populations that don't have English as their first language or don't trust the political party at the time. You know, you've really got to think it through. And if you're not doing that, what you're going to do, because this is what happened in Ebola, is open the door to all the other voices out there. And that's when you get the rumours, the conspiracy theories, that it's caused by 5G, let's burn down the phone masts. You know, that happened in Ebola, not 5G, but the same thing, the same, the rumours, the fear, the distrust. And we just walked straight back into it, I thought, anyway. Yeah, it's so funny when you describe that six o'clock news bulletin like I had a very physical reaction in my body it, it that was such a moment wasn't it that that's what we did and then it was a strange thing like depending on how they dressed that setting and where they were doing that you kind of could second guess what level of news we were going to get but you're so right it's it's that walking the line between making people aware of the risks but not bucketing on fear because we know how humans react to fear which is irrational panicked behavior and and that's exactly where this where it begun to yeah where we lost control yeah it's such a strange time there's i'm trying to recollect it but there's a scene in the book where is it a nurse or a midwife or someone who's who's trying to protect themselves and then off shift they kind of eat eating some biscuits do you know the one I'm talking yeah about? yeah yeah exactly so it's I mean I, I can sort of describe it for, for, for your listeners yeah. it's um you know so so early early on you know in that sort of early period around first lockdown so about April 2020 um you know and everyone was just trying to do whatever they they thought was right but people were making it up as they went along and 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 I'll and I'll tell you again you know part of the reason why that happened was was because of our failure to to learn um lessons which is when you have a crisis and this isn't new by the way this mm. wasn't even new during Ebola uh, when you have a crisis um don't keep changing the goalposts make make some make some rules and stick to them and only change them if it's really, really necessary. Because when you keep changing things, not only does it confuse people, but it really undermines their trust in you as a um, as an individual or as an institution in you know, knowing what you're doing. When we went through one week where um, the PPE guideline changed three times. And, and I remember <laughs> going around again, sort of like, this is so bad because it probably isn't going to make that big a difference, which exactly which PPE we're wearing. Um, but it is going to make a difference. And it did 
in the trust that people have. Because if you say, well, we told you to wear this face mask, but actually we've realised now we don't have enough of those ones. So if you could wear one which is just a bit thinner, that will still be fine. I mean, does that sound like good guidance? So, you know, so I think there was just, unfortunately, for lots of different reasons, and obviously I wasn't part of that decision-making mechanism um, that happened, but it, but it led to... Um, it led to people making their own rules up, which is exactly why we try not to change things too much. Mm. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so we had this situation where um, you would have maybe a, someone in labour with COVID and um, and everyone would want to pile on the PPE um, and, and, and where, you know, and, and again, like I said, there's a fear element, which, which absolutely is understandable, but might wear, you know, three pairs of gloves, two face masks, you know, a couple of aprons, thinking, oh, this one, more is better, more make me safer. And of course, the problem with that was that you get really hot and you're more likely to faint. Uh, but also it's not better because um, what you what you lose is how is the infection spread, right? And so you, you would get these situations where you might have someone wearing three gloves because they think that's safer, but then walking in and out of the room with the gloves on and still touching other things. And so you'd be like, well, like from my perspective, you'd be better off wearing no gloves at all, but washing your hands when you leave the room, right? Um, but that's not always the thought process that we go through. Um, and that's, you know, absolutely not my intention to sort of undermine people who who felt safer, but it's just that thinking like, how, why am I doing what I'm, I, what I'm doing? Uh, and, and how do I reduce uh, infection risks? Um, and yeah, in this scenario, we had exactly that, that Having, having looked after someone in labour with COVID, um, then then coming out with, with bare hands, holding the notes of the patient that had been in the room the whole way through, coughed and splitted on, um, and, and, and sort of picking up a biscuit and eating it, dipping it in the tea, and just not thinking through like, well, when I was in the room, I was going to wear all this PPE, but now I'm out of the room, the situation's changed. Um, and, you know, and these things happened and they, you know, look, they happened in Ebola um, and then I'm sure they will continue to happen for, forevermore because that's that's just the way that we work. Um, but it's it is. Um, yeah, it's worth I think at least worth reflecting on um, for, for certainly for healthcare workers. Yes. But as you say, if your mind becomes clouded because on Monday you had one set of rules on Wednesday, you had another and, you know, we all know it when your brain's trying to process too many other things, it often gets in the way of the things that are, are most important. And I, I, yeah, I think that is a very fair reflection of the whole situation that we all live through. You know, crisis is crisis, but couple crisis with confusion, more confusion than is necessary. And yeah, none of us know what to think and humans are incredible actually as per your book humans are resilient humans are very smart at, at, at surviving but my belief is in order to do that you have to be able to tune into into your human nature and if that is that switch is perpetually turned off then we really find ourselves in a terrible spot yeah yeah it's um it's hard, you know, and uh, you know it's it's hard, especially when you're when you're in a situation that's new and and when you're when you're frightened. Mm. Um, and it wasn't, you know, look, it wasn't just healthcare workers. We used to see it all the time. We still see it. We still see it today. People going on the tube, 
wearing wearing their disposable gloves, but then, you know, scratching the corner of their mouth with the same gloves. You know, and I, I guess I notice it because I'm so so attuned to it, but but I sort of always think like, oh, you know, um, I wish you just weren't wearing the gloves. Because no. I think people would be more aware of that false false sense of security. Yeah, you remember all those memes of people like wearing masks basically with their mouth and nose exposed. (laughs) Oh, it's such a, it's such a strange time. And what I really noticed on this podcast, because I've recorded through the pandemic and have continued since, Mm. and people don't want to talk about it. People really, Mm. really actively, if I, for any reason, wiggle into the link with the, the pandemic it's like there's a very strong reaction to like we are going to box that off and we are going to move on and I think actually what talking to you has made me realize less so for our personal experience but on a global level we have to try and take learnings from these these outbreaks or these humanitarian crises so that we can be better informed in the next yeah, yeah, no, it's funny because I was actually thinking about that the other day that there's that feeling of almost like a national amnesia to um to the pandemic. And um or, or sort of like uh okay, it's it's done now, we we can close that door, um, let's go back to life before. And it, the reason why, why I think about it is because this is really also what happened um after Ebola. And and again, you know, sort of write about it in the book, sort of not I stayed, you know, um, to rebuild maternal health services um, in one part of the country. And, and part of that was going out to these uh, more rural areas to visit their health facilities and the maternal health facilities and finding that, um, you know, through this sort of 18 months of really intensive education and and, and training on, on infection control and how to, you know, really use uh, gloves and change needles and, and all the things that, that we know we should do um, had really been instilled. Because before, before Ebola, there was still, you know, if you're short of gloves, then you don't use them or you reuse them. And the same with single-use needles or single-use catheters. Um, and and that, this is the real, unfortunately, it's the reality in some parts of the world that you don't have enough to meet the demands. And, and so, you know, we thought, well, one of the silver linings of this of this outbreak is that all this training has happened along the way, all this investment. And exactly the same thing, we'd go out and we'd find sort of these stockpiles just pushed to the side and sort of gone back to life as it was before, um, you know, deliver the baby in bare hands, that sort of thing. And um, and I really got the feeling when I spoke to the healthcare workers of something very similar. They say, oh, but that was for Ebola time. You know, we're not, that's done. You know, we're, we're, that's finished. We're, and, and I really felt it was a sense of, that's a trauma that we're just going to package together and we're going to move on. Um, and, and I sort of feel a little bit, obviously it's very, very different, very different, but I do feel a little bit of that um, about COVID mm. as well, that it's sort of like, yep, yeah, that's done now. Let's, let's just <laughs> leave that alone for a while. Yeah, it's fascinating. It, that, that, as you say, that collective decision of amnesia. Uh, yeah, and I wonder whether it's very culturally British thing, but you're saying it's not. It's just like, oh, this is, yeah, right, this is what we're doing, guys. We are putting that one under the under the carpet. It is how you, it's how we cope with trauma, though, isn't it? Put it in a box and, yeah, it and pretend yeah. it didn't happen. And, you know, we're, we're good at identifying the lessons. I'm sure, you know, there will be plenty of... Um, conferences and of course there's going to be the inquiry and 
you know, I'm sure a lot of people will stand up and say, we have identified, or they'll maybe say they've learned, but let's say identified, we've identified these lessons from COVID. But have they learned them? That's that's the real test, because we won't know if we've learned them until we need to put that into practice. And um, my... I, I don't want to sound like I'm pessimistic because I'm not. I do think there's a lot of there is a lot of hope, and I do think things improve over time. But I do think also that we often say we've learned lessons and then very quickly forget them for when we need them, <laughs> as 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 happened I think during COVID. Yeah, I think you're right, and uh, yeah, the, the the terrifying thing is there will be other versions of this because that's how it works, but only time will tell. So I mean, it's yeah, I really want to know from you as a human how do you sit with all of this stuff how do you process it do you put things in boxes do you or yeah is it, is it what inspires you for the work that you do yeah it's a good question I mean I don't think that I have um any sort of specific technique I think for for the Ebola epidemic so, so I've, I've been involved in a few Ebola outbreak since since West Africa but I think for the West African Ebola epidemic actually the best um the best way of me uh organizing my thoughts and getting re-engaged with my feelings and rationalizing everything was through writing the book it was a really cathartic process for me and um you know people sort of say to me oh you know how long did it take to write the book was it really hard to write it and honestly it was easy for me to write this book because I just needed to get it out. You know, I, I sat down and I was writing and it felt good to get it out. It felt good to think I'm going to put this on paper. Someone else is going to look at it. Um, but also it, it it was a process, which I don't think I would have got, you know, if I'd been in a, with a counsellor or something, I just don't think I would have got the same depth of internal reflection as I got through writing the book, because it was very, of course, it's very subjective, but also because I knew I was writing it with the view to publication, I also had to take that step back and fact check. And, and I did a lot of research, you know, in, in the process of writing it to make sure that what I remembered happening was actually what happened and, and speaking to other people. And I think that process was, was incredibly helpful um, for that. And, and now I think it's, um, yeah, sort of a way of life. I think we all have real, you know, it depends on the event, but I'm a very reflective person and, and I'll often, you know, either write about it or sit and talk to a colleague or a partner. Um, but it's also how we learn, you know, and I think if you don't reflect, you can't, you can't learn. And particularly in, you know, with these sorts of complicated, multidimensional uh, situations, like uh, trying to figure out how do we respond to maternal health crisis in a in within a humanitarian crisis you've got to reflect at every moment because you know the next one is coming so i think that's such a a good lesson for the reflection piece it's it's so easy to miss it out but it it, it's incredibly healing and and allows your brain to to work a whole lot of things i had a quite traumatic first birth not nothing compared to any of the things in your book but you know by the standards of health and and i when i then was pregnant again got up my maternity notes which everyone can do and what and went through them with a, with my midwife and as soon as i could put my rational brain away from it and and read through it and understand why things happen 
it answered so many questions and and as you say helped make sense of the things that my imagination had added to it and and help better understand so yeah it's definitely a huge tool that can easily be forgotten but is unbelievably useful yeah 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 and i think i think more and more you know certainly within within medicine we sort of we have to reflect it's part it's part of the way that we maintain our license is showing evidence of reflection um I mean, I think it's like different when you're being forced to do it <laughs> to when you choose to do it. I, I find that yeah, it's, so it's much more effective when I when I want to reflect than when I sort of have to sit in front of my computer and type it in <laughs> to show the evidence. Um, but but there is there is clearly a recognition of its importance. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's so true. It's like trying to force a child to say sorry. There's absolutely no point if they just say the words with no. Yeah, no connection in their mind to what they're saying. So two questions to end. Number one, where can people find you and, and what let's do another big shout out to the book. So um so I can be found on Twitter and Instagram and the handle is at Benjam Black. Uh so missing the I N because unsurprisingly someone else got in got in there first with my full name. So so Benjam Black. Um and a shout out for the book. I mean I guess what I what I would really like like your listeners to to know about the book is that it sounds and, I, and I'm always aware of this whenever I talk about about the book is that um, it can sound really heavy and it is a heavy book, um, but it's not a textbook. Um, and you know, you Clemmy, you've read it, so so you can <laughs> you can attest to this. It's not a textbook. It's it's a book that's intended to be read. It's a, it is a story um, which shares a lot of information and a lot of stories, but it's it's there for reading it's there for and it sounds a bit what but it's there for enjoying and, and opening your eyes to, to maybe a side of life that we don't always get exposed to and I think that you know I, I wrote the book because I think it's a really really important story to share but even more than that because I think that we just don't talk about it enough we don't talk enough about what it's like to be pregnant and giving birth in places where you don't have access to healthcare. And, and to be able to watch the news, like like how we started this uh, discussion, seeing, you know, the earthquake at the moment, or if there's a the conflict in Ukraine, or the current, there's a conflict, big conflict going on that's just ended in Ethiopia. But, you know, when you see these things on the news and asking, but what about the pregnant women? What about the teenage girls? What about um, the people in that refugee camp? You know, who's protecting them from sexual exploitation? It doesn't get on the news that often, but you can be sure it's huge, mm. um, and that's that's really why why I want people to read this book. Yeah, I, I as a, a reader, I do want to back the fact that yeah, it, it's the wrong language to say it's entertaining. It's just it's just fascinating because it's just so human, and because yeah, you know, the two things that are guaranteed in this life are birth and death, and to have them sit so closely together is um yeah it's something else i have to say for the, the, the week that i read it i i dreamt that i was having a baby every single night and actually to begin oh, with i didn't tie it together and i've i've heard that when i'm like in my early 40s that as you kind of head towards perimenopause you can have this thing where your eggs are like do you want in do you want another baby i was like oh god maybe i want another baby and then then i realized it's because your book had got into my psyche so much (laughs) oh okay (laughs) i think that's a compliment i think it's a compliment i think it's like 
it's doing something so deep in my in my mind that it was going to anyhow it's quite funny yeah last question <laughs> if you could have an honest conversation with one person who would it be and what would you say gosh i'm only allowed one person because yeah. there's so many <laughs> <laughs> so many for so many different reasons um i think at the moment just because of where my head is at um I'd probably want to have a conversation with someone called Samuel Alito, Justice Samuel Alito. And I don't know if you if you recognize the name, but he's the guy in America who um, really um, pushed through the reversal of Roe versus Wade. Um, and I would like to just, I would like to have an honest conversation with him to just understand, really, you know, I want to take religion out of it. I want to just have an honest conversation and understand what is it that you want? What, what's your what's your game here? Because it's just so beyond me how a man, an older man, in such a position of power can feel so, you know, of all the things, all the things in the world, all the things in America that need to be changed, that this is what he's chosen to champion, the restriction on the reproductive rights of of an entire generation, you know, and it's not just women, it's everybody. Of course, it's women who are, who are going to be the most impacted, but he's, and, 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 and the ball that it started rolling, because of course that discussion is expanded to contraceptive rights, it's expanded to gay rights. And I, I would just be really fascinated, um, try to take my own emotions out of it, but to have an honest conversation with him, just to try to understand like, you know, what is it? Is it about power? Is it about control? I really would like to know, um, yeah, where, where does this come from? Yeah, it's, it's so absolutely I'll, I'll baffling, isn't it? You know, again, especially in the work that you've done where you're trying to take, uh, you know, a, a very poor country and bring it anywhere near the healthcare that we, we in the first world, fortunately, have access to. And then from the, you know, from the top to begin to unpick it again, it's just... Yeah, it's bonkers. That's a good choice. You go with him. Let me know when you get him on. Yeah, for <laughs> listening to the podcast. Thank you so much, and thank you for all the work that you do, and and such an, an important, yeah, an important book and important work. Thank you. It's been it's really been been a pleasure. Uh, I've enjoyed every moment. Uh, well, that was like a bit of therapy for me, not because of my own things, but. Not therapy, that's not the right language. It's like book club for me because I, I read Benjamin's book and then just wanted to talk to anyone about it. And most of us haven't got the foggiest about what it might have been like in that crisis. So, I, yeah, I feel really lucky to have spoken to him and very humbled by the work that he did, does, or did there, and humbled by the reminder that there are other humans facing unthinkably difficult things at any given moment and I think it's very important to be reminded of that that isn't to say the lives that we're all living aren't difficult and challenging but yeah I like being reminded of the global picture if that makes sense and I really do recommend his book um I'll put a link in the show notes and on Instagram and that's a wrap thank you so much for listening to this episode of but why come and find us on Instagram it's but why underscore podcast 
I am now off to, I was going to say have lunch, but I've looked at the time and it's half past 10, so I won't be having lunch. I'll probably be having a snack. Um, yeah, thank you. Please join us next time. Bye-bye.